I'll just be honest with you, as I was praying over this this afternoon and, and getting ready, I, I went to work today and, and did some work at the school and uh, got to spend, to be honest with you, some quiet time there doing that. And I'm still, just to be honest with you guys, really uh, devastated about this. This is not something that sits well with me. I, I see the glory of God in it, but at the same time, um, it reminds me every single day just exactly how much I miss the church. So I want you to know um, that, that you are missed and that um, I really long for that day when we are uh, turned loose from this bondage and we are allowed to, uh, to love you guys, to be honest with you, like you deserve. You're being loved in prayer right now. You're being loved uh, by way of the Word. But I long for that time when we can be back together, when this room doesn't have the echo that it does right now because it's full of, of God's people. Look, I want to begin in, in Psalm chapter 6. Let's read and then we'll pray and we'll spend a few minutes together. In Psalm chapter 6, verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death... There is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning every night. I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's pray together. Father God, I love you, God. I thank you for every moment, every opportunity to come together, Father God, and share in the gospel. Father God, I thank you for, uh, for the days in which we live right now, Father God. I thank you for a great proliferation via social media of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Father God. At the same time, Father God, I, I pray that this... Uh, that these times, Father God, stir your church to, to love you even more, Father God, and to love the church more. It stirs us, Father God, that we want to be together more than we possibly can say right now, Father God. I, I long for those days, God. I want to walk into this room and have it full of people again. So, God, I pray for that. I pray, Father God, we know that you are... Um, that you are sovereign over every single thing in this world, including a virus, Father God. And so for that reason, Father, we know we are not to despair, but we, Father God, uh, are allowed to pray in a living hope. We ask you now, Father God, to, to bless us, bless this church, Father God, wherever we are gathered. Bless every family, Father God, that gathers by any means possible, Lord, that they come together and that they love each other, Father God, and that they take this time, Father God, that you can be exalted through your word. In the name of Christ. Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. Um, I, I began with a quote a lot. This is one of those quotes. The French novelist Victor Hugo, who I don't think I've ever quoted in a sermon before, he wrote, he said, Have courage for the small ones. And when you have, uh, excuse me, have courage for the great sorrows of life and patience for the small ones. And when you have laboriously accompanied your daily task, go to sleep in peace. God is awake. Now, uh, Hugo, who'd seen very bitter times in his own life and wrote these great sweeping novels, virtually always about very, very, very bitter times, 
this idea that he would end this quote by proclaiming that God is awake. That God watches over, that God doesn't sleep. That while we sleep, we have a great protector who watches over us, who, who tends to our needs. And while we must have rest, he does not need it at all. While we must have rest in order to, to work at our best, he is sharper than we can possibly imagine. And so we are not forgotten even in the depths of night. We are never, he's never too busy uh, for, for us or our needs. Now look, King David, um, we know, although King David was a great man of God um, in both valor, and he was celebrated in 1 Samuel 18, 7 with a song, Saul has struck down his thousands and David is ten thousands. David, the greatest warrior in all of Israel. He was also a great worshiper of our Lord and the author of many psalms. Described in Acts 13.22 as he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Well, he was those two things. Great warrior, great worshiper, great leader of the children of Israel, great leader in many ways of the church itself. David's Psalms also teaches, and I guess it's it's. I know it is by the uh, fortuitous work of a, of a living Savior that we began a journey through Psalms just as all this began to be unveiled, Brother Brian. And that is that, that so much of the Psalms are about how to deal with times of suffering, how to deal with times of attack. Now, uh, most of the time, these times of attack have a face. We just happen to be in a time right now when the, the attack doesn't have a face. It is a shape that we're all familiar with. We all, we've seen artist uh, renderings of what this virus looks like. We've all seen that, uh, that um, through the media somewhere. But we don't have an enemy to be defeated in the same way as if you had a personal enemy. As if we were going to war with a nation. Are you individually going to battle with a person? There's no David and Goliath um, true comparison here in that our enemy is microscopic but more insidious. Look, through its depth and passion. Excuse me, let me go back. David's Psalms teach us that he was a man of consistent and overwhelming sorrow. Just was. David was a man of sorrow. David, for all of his accomplishments, suffered a great deal, often at his own hand. Often David is, is his own worst enemy, as we might say in our, in, in, in our modern day. For everything David could do, David still got himself into almost constant trouble. And sometimes troubles just simply were visited upon him. Look, in, in verse 2, and I'm going to focus tonight on two verses. I felt like the best way to do this justice was to pull out of the, out of the ten verses of, of Psalm 6, these two verses that I think, that I think best kind of represent uh, the lessons that our Lord's trying to teach us through Psalm 6. In, verse, in Psalm 6, verse 2, David writes, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Look, through its depth and its passion, this verse demonstrates two relationships that should be predominant in our blood-bought fellowship with Christ. And I mean two relationships between ourselves and our Lord. This is what He does for us. This is what God offers to us all the time, but especially right now. 
Especially right now when the enemy is obvious. Now, I, I want to I modify that for just a moment. Because the, the reality is, is that we need Him every day. Before the coronavirus was a thing, before there was such a pandemic as COVID-19, the reality was we were in, such a, we're in just as precarious a situation. All of us was a heartbeat away from seeing our lives end. All of us were. Life still comes, I mean, death still comes very, very easily in this world. It's been highlighted because of a global pandemic. But, but a year ago, this, this, this verse was just as applicable. Was that when we are in dire straits, we're in that situation where we do not know where to turn, then this is what our God so clearly in verse 2 offers to us through David. First, the grace of God is the antidote to what David calls a languishing life. Now, part of me is going to feel bad about this, and let me explain, which is that I'm going to discuss the Hebrew words for these, for, for, for some English words, what, what words have been translated. But the reality is, whether it's a, someone doing a home Bible study or with their family, you need not really go into the Hebrew or the Greek, Brother Brian, very often, right? The fact of the matter is, is that a great deal of pain and suffering was inflicted upon those who wanted to give us the Bible in a vernacular language. Tyndale was strangled and burned for translating the Bible into English. So if we study just the English, English language Bible, we do well. We do well. But there are occasions, and they are, they are they're fine to use, there are occasions where more can be revealed. If we go just a step deeper to those original languages. So I'm going to take a few moments in this to look at original language, languages. I am no expert in these, but I'll discuss them as best I can. The Hebrew word used by David is umlal, which means to be feeble or frail, to lack vitality, energy, or health. Now, I think that's important because when David talks about living a languishing life, it's not necessarily a life that's cut down by sickness or necessarily a life that's stricken by energy. We have all been in a situation where the circumstances around us were so wicked. They were such an attack, uh, Brother Kyle, on our, on our mind or our heart that we felt them literally sapping the energy from us. We saw ourselves in the situation, we thought, I may not have the energy to go on much longer. I believe that's what David is confessing at this time. There was a frailty, a feebleness that had come upon David. And it wasn't natural more than as much as it was spiritual. David was feeling the attacks. He felt uh, sapping away of his vitality, of his energy, of the very health. Look, the circumstances of David's life were so intensely stressful, so fraught with danger, that his spirit was being decimated by the attack. David was being killed slowly from the inside. From the inside. He was dying in spirit first. Literally, David was that man who tries to climb the mountain and gives up because he cannot go another step 
farther. We can all imagine that. Being so at the brink of exhaustion that we say, you just have to leave me here. We've seen it, it depicted many times, both historically and also in literature, right? Where someone begs to be left behind. Where you become that person that says, I just can't go any farther. Leave me behind. You must go on without me. Or, or maybe something we can even more closely uh, relate to. The swimmer who try, tires and succumbs because he or she cannot see the shore. Maybe it's prevented by fog. Maybe it's, it's another stroke or two more before you can see the island, the shoreline in the distance. But because we are so caught in that difficult time that what do we do? We simply stop believing in the shore. It's the depth of a dark night when we stop believing that the sun will come up and the dawn will break. And we just give up. Now, I, I believe David relates this to us because David wasn't a man of weakness, but David was a man, obviously, of great strength, great spiritual strength, great physical strength, great courage. David, as a boy who has never shaved, stares down the giant. It was within David to be very courageous. And if David can, can, can succumb to fear, if David can succumb to heartbreak, then so can we. And so can we. It's a warning. It's a warning. Look, the prophet Isaiah depicts the situation this way when he writes in Isaiah 37 verse 3. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. This is the Bible's illustration of it. A precious mother, in the midst of giving birth, who does not have the strength to bring her child into this world. Something she dearly loves is still being overwhelmed, overwhelmed by exhaustion. Exhaustion. And what David would say if a mother that loves her child so intensely would not have the strength, the vitality, the energy to bring forth a child, then what about you and I in dealing with an enemy? Might we give in? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, there's an answer though. The answer to that temptation to give up and submit to the darkness around us, especially when the blackness is robbing us of every ounce of joy and every moment of peace. Now, I know we've been in that situation. From the outside, it looks like everything is going our way, but inside there's no joy and there's no peace. It's exhausting, isn't it? Where's you out? The answer is to seek the grace of God, which will stave off any desire to surrender when overcome by antagonists. Grace. David survived on grace. The mountain climber who reaches the top of the mountain despite exhaustion survives because of God's grace. The swimmer who reaches the distant shore despite the temptation of exhaustion does so because of the grace of God. And even the mother in the midst of the throes of childbirth who is overcome by exhaustion greets her precious child because of the grace of God. Because of what God gives. So we now call upon, in our, in our situation, the grace of God. God send His grace, please, so that we might prosper when all around us seem to fail. 
Please do this. Like also David's prayerful solution to the trouble in his bones is Rapha from the Lord are refreshing, repairing, or healing. The grace of God and the healing power of God over the body, mind, and spirit of His children is the lifeline that allows the church to victoriously conquer in times of extreme oppression, challenge, or terror. Refreshing, repairing, healing. That God promises, in this verse, He promises to, He promises that He will, He promises that He will restore us by way of His grace. And He promises that He will refresh, repair, and heal. Our personal fear is that the church can somehow conquer, yet we are failures. Now we have to speak to something very specific. Is that I think we all probably accept that these things are absolutely abundantly true. We know that God does this for the church. But in the midst of the church, man, there are going to be people going to say, Look, I know the church is going to conquer, but I feel like I'm going to fail. I know the church is going to conquer, but I'm going to be the one. A hundred of them are going to win, and I'm going to be the one that loses. I know how we are, because we can be like that. Dreading passages like Hebrews 10.39, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We're saying, well, I know that some are going, most are going to have faith, but I'm the, I'm the one who shrinks back. I'm the one who gets to that point and I give up. I give up halfway up the mountain. I give up when I'm swimming the raging sea. I give up in the midst of my great trial. Look, the danger of turning back or seeing our faith collapse is counteracted by the promises from Christ to both the individual, as Paul wrote to a young Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, he reminds him of the gifts of God, to the believing church. And he says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That is a promise individually and corporately. It is for the church. So understand, it's not for Brother Brian and not for Brother Tony. It's not for Brother Kyle and not for Brother Tony. If it's for Brother Kyle or Brother Brian, it's for me too. It's for all of you. It's for every one of us. The promise is what? For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-discipline. So to counteract this idea that we could be the failure, he says, but oh, by the way, here's the promise of God. God who doesn't lie has now promised that you have power and love and self-discipline. That you are not unequipped to deal with this world, but you are equipped with spiritual defenses. And also a description of the impact of the church by Jesus in Matthew 16, 18. Which he says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The, the church built on the one rock, Jesus Christ, will prevail against even the forces of hell. Because he promises that. And that is for the church enough. He has promised it. The one who never lied, who is incapable of lying, who is infinitely powerful and infinitely loving, that one right there promised that his church would not collapse, but would overwhelm even the gates of hell. And if he says that, he means it. And he doesn't just mean it for the church in general. He doesn't just mean it for the church universal and invisible. But he means it, listen to me, if you are part of the church, he means it for you. We will not 
be overcome by this crisis because God means that we will not be overcome. That's what he means. God's church and God's people will prevail and the powers of hell will not. Whether they are manifested in a virus or they are manifested in a person, it does not matter. They will not prevail. There's no risk to the individual born again believer because Jesus declares that the children of God will have eternal life. John 10 verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, Jesus makes a promise. Anything to the opposite of that would be what? Somehow Jesus has broken His promise. The one who has never lied, who cannot lie, who has no guile in Him, now must lie and must have guile. Those things are simply not true. His promises are 100% valid for all eternity. If He promises that we will have eternal life and never perish, then guess what? We have eternal life and we will never perish. Whatever the mechanism is, however someone can rationalize that for themselves, does not matter. The promise is still abundantly true. That Jesus promises to the church, born again by His blood, eternal life. And He means that the church, born again by His blood, will have eternal life. The grace and the healing power of the Lord ensure that His church will neither falter nor fail and that His people will realize their potential in times of crisis. The true church in a time of global fear has no fear at all. Now, I know we have fear, so calm down. We have fear. I have a great deal of fear. Brother Kyle Ford's magazine today used the D word. Depression. Not the, Washington, not the New York Post. Or the Washington Post, for that matter. Forbes magazine. Used depression. I admit it. I've got some fear. There's no doubt I've got some fear. I hardly know anyone alive right now who remembers the depression. I'm fearful of that. I'll be the first to admit. But the reality is this. We are in such secure hands. Our God does not fear viruses nor economic downturns. He is not a slave to them. He is not going to throw up His hands and be confused by them. He is a master of every single virus and every decimal point. None of them are, are outside of His power or outside of His reach. I am fearful because I'm broken and I'm human. But as the church, we've got no right to be fearful. No right at all. Because we are held close by the God of our fathers. Once again, we have not escaped His notice. Now, I want to look at verse 9. Now, very, very quickly, if you will, with me. Just in the last few moments. In verse 9, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Look, our ongoing battle... At the, uh, with the elements of darkness which are present in the world around us and in the natural remnant which endures in our broken psyches is emboldened by David's words characterizing the response of God to prayer. Now the first thing, the first part of this was this is what God's going to do. This is where we look in times of trouble. We look for the grace of God. We look for the healing power of God, the refreshing power of God. When we are sapped of our energy and our vitality and our strength and we think we just simply cannot go another step, then God God both gives us grace and heals us. Heals us spiritually or physically. Whatever need be, God does. God does. 
But then verse 9, this is specifically about how he responds to our prayers. The, the two-way communication of prayer. And let me show you very, very quickly. The Lord's response to David's prayer is to hear Shoma. Hear with attention, with interest, listen to. Now, when I, when I was doing some, some research on this and just going back over these, the, the verbiage, the, 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 the Hebrew, I was just struck by that idea because it seems so, such a human thing for me to discuss. But let me discuss it just a second. Um, the, the men are gathered here today have children. Many times in my life, I have heard them but not listened to them. Do we understand the difference? I know they're talking. I know they're saying my name. I know I'm hearing daddy, 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 and I won't stop because I'm, I'm thinking of something else. I know it's being said, but I'm, I, I hear it, but I'm not really paying it any attention. I think there's a radical difference within what our Lord is saying here in that not God's response to prayer isn't just that He hears prayer, but God's response to prayer is that He listens to prayer. Because I hear it all the time. I hear all sorts of things, but I don't listen to them. I don't stop. I'm still self-centered. I'm limited physically. I'm limited intellectually. I'm limited emotionally. I'm limited spiritually. And I'm just not going to stop. I'll get caught up in myself and my own problems that I won't stop and really listen to what a child says or what an adult says, what someone else says. And God just doesn't do that. He doesn't let me talk and not turn and pay attention. It is a measure of the infinite nature of our God that He can turn and pay attention to a billion people praying at the same time. That He can listen intently to every single one of them. He can pay everybody the same amount of infinite attention that I'm incapable of. It's not that I'm incapable of it because I don't love the people I'm supposed to do. I'm incapable of it because I'm not able to love the way I should love right now. I can't love the way I need to. I need to love that way. It's admirable to love that way. And almost always the world is going to shake me and make me turn and listen instead of hear. God never has to be shaken. When His people cry out to Him, He turns and He listens. Even if the answer is no. Even if God has a different plan, if His sovereignty means to go somewhere else or do something else, it doesn't matter. God still turns and gives it His attention. How He's able to give the entire world His full attention at the same time, my finite mind cannot imagine. What His infinite mind can do. He listens. There's a profound difference between someone hearing and someone listening to you. Our prayers arrest the heart and mind of God. God really listens to them. That's great, the idea that when I turn to pray that God really listens. You know what? I need to pray better. I don't mean I've got to come up with fancier words. I've got to pray more honestly. I've got to pray with more abandon. Abandon, I've got to pray more consistently. Because if, I, if, if I'm understanding this right, it means when I get on my knees to pray that I have the attention of God. But then what else? Then our Lord accepts. Lakash. To take in hand, to receive, to accept. The prayer then belongs to God. It's part of His divine will. And, and can no more fail than, than He can. He hears it and He accepts it. He takes it. 
It doesn't just float around. It doesn't rise no higher than the ceiling. All those euphemisms we might have for it. The reality is that when we pray to Him, we pray to a listening God. That listening God hears, hears that, that, that prayer and He accepts it. He takes it in. Whenever we are confronted by things that, that we can neither control nor bear. Now, I think those, those, that's a truth that needs to be explored for just a second. And that is there are a lot of things around us that we simply cannot control. Right, Brother Brian, things that we wish we could control, we wish we could change them, and they're not going to change. Long-term sickness sometimes is like that. Financial difficulties, um, interpersonal problems can be, can be very, very slow to be resolved. They can be stubborn and thorny issues. And we realize that we cannot control those. We can merely, as Brother Brian talked about last night, we can pray about them. We get to pray about them. We have the privilege and the honor and the power of prayer on our side. We get to do that. What, what a great thing that we get to pray. But at the same time, there are also some things out there that we just know we cannot bear. I can do this, but I can't do that. I can take financial troubles, but I can't take my kids being sick. I can take a problem at work, but I can't take a problem at home. How many times have we been put in a situation where we were, were, were facing something that we just knew this was more than us? This is greater. I can handle this thing, but I can't take this. So we're turning to God to pray about something that we know we have no ability to bear. We need Him to bear it for us. Prayer becomes the empowered alternative to anxiety and personal horror. Prayer is the alternative to anxiety. Look, in an anxious culture, I don't mean now, I mean normally an anxious culture. But especially anxious right now, we have now been given from Psalm 6 God's response to anxiety, which is prayer. Which is prayer. Which is deep, meaningful, powerful prayer. The heart guided by the Holy Spirit and informed by the pages of Scripture is one which is undergoing a transformation of prayer. Which enables sin-marred brains and personalities to pray in line with the will of God and not contrary to it. Now, I'm just, this, is, this is a personal observation that I believe is supported by the, by the truth of the Scriptures. And that is that a lot of the time when our prayers seem to go in a direction that we do not desire them to go, it is because I was praying wrongly. I was praying wrongly. I was praying for something I had no business praying for. I was praying for something that was, a, that was part of my vanity. I was praying something that, that, that showed that I was surrendered to my own will and not surrendered to the will of God. But whatever the reason, whatever the purpose, I was praying something that I had no business praying. And that what God does through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the, in, the increased influence of the Scriptures. Where I'm not, Brother Brian, praying against the Scriptures, but praying in line with the Scriptures, Right? So that my prayers, which I seek for God to answer, are not prayers in which God would have to violate His own spoken word in order to, to uh, make them come uh, to pass. Instead, I have set my mind and my heart to pray the pages of Scripture over my own life. The things that God has already promised, I now pray for. Our Lord Jesus tells us in Mark eleven twenty four, kind of a dangerous passage. He says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. A lot of mess happens in the Christian world over that passage right there. 
However, that is the most glorious passage in the world in which we, we realize now that what I'm asking is refracted by the power of the Holy Spirit to influence my heart and the teachings of the Scripture. Now, all of a sudden, I'm praying in line with what? Where the Holy Spirit leads me and what He teaches me through God's divine Word. Again, for this is to be true, and it is, and for our Lord to be sovereign as the Scriptures teach us. In Psalm 115, verse 3, our Lord is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. He does what He pleases. It's a clear declaration of the sovereignty of God. He does as exactly as He pleases. Well, if I am, if my direction of prayer is opposite my Lord's, then something has to give. A radical transformation of the praying heart is taking place in the ministry of the believer. Because if God is sovereign over it all, then for my prayers to come to pass, they must be a reflection of God's sovereignty. Prayer remodeled to become a kingdom force for the gospel, for the lost, for the hurting, and those in direst need. We have an opportunity right now, church, to be the most praying church in generations. To be a church absolutely bathed in prayer. Bathed in prayer. Awash in prayer. Look, not prayer misguided or misdirected towards self-interest, but prayer that reflects the clear principles of the Bible. Prayer that is in line with Scripture. Look, at the same time, please, prayer is not just for others. But it is part of God's plan for empowering His church to deal with the trials of life. God didn't just give us prayer so that we could pray for brothers and sisters and pray for the government and pray for our leadership and pray for missionaries around the globe and pray for the lost and pray for the sick and pray for all those people that we absolutely are supposed to pray for. He didn't just give us prayer to glory in Him and exalt in Jesus. To make much of Christ through the action of prayer. He didn't just give us prayer that prayer would be worshipful. Because it is and it must. But He gave us prayer because we need so much. He gave us prayer because we'll fold without it. He gave us prayer because we'll never climb the mountain. We'll never swim the ocean. He gave us prayer because no baby will ever be brought forth. He gave us prayer because we would always give up. God gave us prayer because He knew us too well. Paul writes in, in, in Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Pray about it. What's the answer to anxiety? In a culture that's anxious, in a time in which anxiety may be overwhelming us, there's so much fear. We literally talk about words right now that we haven't talked about for almost a hundred years, Brother Kyle. Brother Brian. A hundred years. And now we're talking about these words. God's clear antidote to cultural anxiety within the church is what? Make it an object of prayer. Families praying together. Because we can't go apart now. We are with each other. Our church is, is properly divided into families right now. Families coming together in prayer right now. Making every petition known to the Lord. Every petition known. Therefore, the application in light of, of verse 9 is clear. In times of distress, turn your heart to Christ through prayer. Simultaneously, liberate your prayer from the goods of this world and use it to enlarge the kingdom. Church, by doing this, 
our hearts can and will be satisfied in the Lord, even in times of trouble. Right now, the time in which we live, a time of great trouble, the church can be more satisfied in the Lord than at any other time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and be satisfied in Him. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank You. I thank You for this church, Father. I thank You for the technology to be able to share this message, Father God. I pray, God, that humble as it was, Father God, I know, God, it wasn't very much. But I pray, Father God, that You will use it greatly within Your people. Father God, I love this church. I care for it so much, Father God. And I know, Father God, that that, um, this is a strong people. And they're going to be ready, Father God, to meet every challenge. Begin, Father God, by putting us on our knees right now. Whatever the future holds, Father God, drive your church to their knees. The safest place we can be, Father God, is on our knees, petitioning you, Father God, about everything. We love you, Father. In the name of Christ Jesus, Father God, we humbly pray. Amen.